You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. This morning, we finished up uh, in our look at verses 4 to 6 of chapter 1 by looking at the rebuke of the world uh, to Jonah. And, and through Jonah, the rebuke of the world to the church. The heathen captain rebuking Jonah for his prayerlessness. And, and we saw that verse 6 was in the form of a question and a command. The question, how can you sleep? The command, get up and call on your God. And if, if you forget everything else that I said this morning, and maybe if you forget everything else that I say tonight, if you could remember that question and command and go away with that and think about it all week, I think it would be a good job done. How can you sleep? That's the question. Get up and call on your God. That's the command. wonder, do you notice that though Jonah is asked a question, there is no mention of a reply by Jonah. Do you notice that? They ask the question, there's no reply recorded to that question. So the first thing that I want us to notice this evening is Jonah's silence. Jonah's silence. He's questioned about why he's not praying. Well, how can he pray? Think about it. How can he pray? He is running away from the presence of God. He continues to refuse to perform God's will. Therefore, to pray in faith is to pray in submission to the divine will and to depend on the divine word. But for Jonah to attempt to do that would lay him open even to his own conscience. How how could Jonah pretend to submit when he is at war with God's will. God's will is to go to Nineveh. Jonah's saying, no, I want to get as far away from Nineveh as I possibly can. So how can he pray when he's disobeying the will of God so his conscience won't let him pray? And, and of course, this is something that God often had to contend with, with his people, isn't it? If you, if you go back with me to the, to the book of Isaiah, uh, go to Isaiah chapter 1. And uh, verse 15. Verse 15 of Isaiah 1. Here's what God says. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. And here's the reason why. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice and so. And so it goes on. So how can Jonah pray when he's doing the opposite of what God asked him to do? So he's silent as regards the command. I wonder, does this contradict the truth then that God is the one who hears and answers prayer? Of course not. 
But it proves, doesn't it, that he hates hypocrisy. You know, saying one thing and doing another. <clears throat> See, folks, when, when a man knowingly disobeys any command from God and then begins to pray, he is defying the omniscience of God as if God did not know about his sin. Do you see that? It's, it's as if, you know, he can hoodwink God, as if he can fool God, but you can't. God is omniscient. He knows everything. Or you sin against God. You, you knowingly refuse to obey his clearly revealed will, and without repentance you approach him with your prayers and expect that he will answer those prayers? You expect that he will blink at your sin? No, it won't happen. In Hosea 5 and verse 15, God says, Then I will go back to my place until they admit their guilt, and they will seek my face. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. It appears then that repentance is necessarily implied in all true prayer. John puts it like this in 1 John 3 and 22. We receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. Without repenting then and returning to his duty, Jonah's prayers could not be heard. Rather, Jonah could not pray from the heart. He was silent. He was silent. Though these pagans around him were calling on their gods, their false gods, Jonah was silent. Brothers and sisters in Christ, is there a lesson here for us? Are there any here guilty of the sin of prayerlessness? And you can't pray. You can't pray because you know that you're living a life of disobedience to the revealed will of God. If that describes you this evening, then I urge you to repent of that disobedience, whatever it costs you, whatever it costs you, so that you can be reconciled and truly pray. There was Jonah's silence. Second thing I want to look at is this whole idea of casting lots. Look at that verse again. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but I find this difficult. Then the sailors said to each other, come let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. There's something I think, intrinsically evil about this whole procedure. Their, their minds are full of superstition. And, and so they appeal to the lot in order that whatever gods there are might overrule and identify the scapegoat for them. It, it's not by any stretch of the imagination an act of true faith in the living God. And, and I want us to notice three significant elements of Bible teaching regarding the casting of lots. And this is by no means exhaustive, but just some, some guides. First one, 
lots are frequently used in the Old Testament period as a means of determining the will of God. You remember how Achan was discovered. You remember whenever the children of Israel were, were about to uh, take on Jericho and they were, they were defeated. Why were they defeated? Because there was sin in the camp. And they cast lots and the lot fell on a particular tribe and a particular family and Achan was separated out. And Achan and his family were put to death. Saul, King Saul, was chosen to be Israel's king by lot, 1 Samuel 10, 21. And the land of promise, whenever they came to the dis distribution of the land of promise, it was apportioned between the various tribes by lot. Secondly, it's clear that when lots were used in a godly and solemn way according to, to God's law, he would use them to give guidance. It's also true that where the use of lots was ungodly and superstitious, they would never overthrow the Lord's will. And in this way, the superstitious casting of lots by the sailors was used by God to expose Jonah's sin to public view. God does not approve of paganism when he does this. Rather, rather it's... Uh, it's an instance of his sovereignty asserting itself even in the midst of human error. Proverbs 16.33 The lot is cast into the lap but its every decision is from the Lord. Third thing I want to say about it is this. It's, it's also clear that in the New Testament the practice of casting lots to discern God's will disappears. The unique transaction recorded in Acts 126 was according to Peter the fulfillment of Psalm 69 25 that's when they chose someone to replace Judas it's significant that in the post Pentecost church offices were filled by popular choice not by lot in other words the people voted for who they wanted to be their leaders so there's no warrant for using lots today for discovering the will of God we have the canon of Scripture. And, and you see, Scripture's not just, it's not just that it's uh, inerrant, that there are no mistakes in it. The Scriptures are sufficient. wonder do we believe that. The Scriptures are sufficient. We don't need anything else. We're no longer living in the age when we need a word of prophecy, a word from God, we have God's inscripturated word and it is absolutely reliable and therefore we don't need to depend on something like a lot. So there's no warrant for using it. Now, of course, lots can be used for quite legitimate purposes. For example, tossing a coin to see which way you play in a football match. That's perfectly legitimate. There's nothing wrong with that. Lotteries, however, are in a different category, whether for the enrichment of a winner or the benefit of a good cause. They are to be rejected as a circumvention of God's means for the provision of our needs. What are God's means for the provision of our means? Namely, work. Second Thessalonians 3, 6 to 13 tells us that we need to work for a living. And, and folks, we need work. It's not just that we need work to earn a living, and we do. But we need work. We need work for our mental health. We need work for a sense of fulfillment. 
mankind, mankind needs to work. Or the other way that uh, resources can come to us is genuine charity from individuals or the church or the state. But why did the sailors cast lots? Well, they did so because while they could accept that someone had to be responsible for their predicament, not one of them saw himself as guilty. They wondered, who could this be? If God was angry, which they did not doubt, then he was angry with someone else. It wasn't me. Hence the lot was cast to reveal the guilty party. I don't know whether that makes things clearer or muddies the water, to be honest, but it's, it's just what I've come across in my research. Third thing I want to come to is the sailor's question. And the sailor's question is this, who is responsible for this calamity? Whose fault is it? Why are we in this terrible situation where we're in a ship, we've got rid of all the stuff, we've thrown stuff over the side, and still the storm is getting worse and worse? Who is responsible? See, God's purpose here is to bring Jonah to repentance so that at last his prayers may be answered. And so things are going to first get worse before they get better. Listen again. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. It's like there's a big finger pointing at Jonah, a big arrow pointing at Jonah. The, the sailors, in making the proposal to cast lots, seem to acknowledge that God or the gods are displeased about something. But by proposing a lot, they are disowning any guilt. Now, of course, the anger of God was pursuing Jonah, not them. But they didn't know that until afterwards. They didn't know who was responsible. They assumed that they weren't responsible. They, they want to discover who is responsible for this calamity. But, but did they not acknowledge themselves to be sinners? Of course they would. Of course they would. If, if you had said to them, look, do you, do you not realize that, that you're a sinner, that, that you break even the moral laws of the day? Of course they would have admitted that. But this great and powerful storm indicated to them great and special sin. And this is what they deny by submitting to the Lord. Now, I believe we have here a picture of the extent to which man by nature, men by nature, are willing to admit that they're sinners. You talk to anyone, you know, and say to them, if you get into conversation with them at all about the things of God, do you recognize that you're a sinner? I, I tell you, I met one man in, in my life to this moment, one man only, who said to me that no, he said, I said, do you, do you recognize that you're a sinner? He said, no. And I looked at him, and, are you serious? And he was genuinely serious. No, he says, what, what did I do wrong? And I couldn't, 
I couldn't believe it. I simply couldn't believe it. He's the only one, but he was deluded. But everyone, everyone that I talked to, yes, I know him. I know I'm not perfect. That's what they'll say. No, I'm not perfect. I, I do the best I can. I, you know, I, I try to be a good husband or a good wife. I try to be a good parent. I, you know, try to be a good example. I, I know I'm not perfect. Yes, yes, I'm a sinner. But depict to them the eternal wrath of God, the second death, banishment from the presence of the Lord, consignment with the lost angels to the lake of fire forever, and ask the worldly man, are you a sinner to that extent? Are you guilty to that degree? Do you admit you're a sinner to such an extent as justifying God in appointing that as the wages of your sin? And the carnal mind recoils from making such an admission. The natural man is prepared neither so to condemn himself nor to admit that the only way of escape is the sheer grace of God so that he becomes indebted to his offended God for undeserved kindness and compassion. I wonder, wonder is there anyone in here still asking for whom could such doom be righteously prepared, looking elsewhere for guilt? All that type of judgment is for other people, not for me. Are you putting away the question? Remember when Jesus told them that one of them was going to betray him? They all said in turn, is it I? Is it I? And are you putting away the answer? The answer that God, by his word and spirit, and by his law and your conscience gives, you are the man or you are the woman. Yes, you are. You are guilty. I am guilty. I am deserving. That's what naturally I deserve. The wrath of God poured out on me. It's only by the grace of God that I stand here today and preach to you. Because God showed me mercy. Not because I deserved it. Not because I was better than anyone else. But only by the sheer grace of God. All thousands admit that they're sinners. But they have absolutely no true conviction. That who they are before God involves a deep recognition that we are sinners and fully deserve, fully deserve the just wrath of God against our sin. And with that comes the awareness that we need to be delivered from sin. We need to be delivered from its consequences. And not least, that that redemption can only, only be affected by the sovereign, free, and unmerited grace of God. That's the only way we can escape. And the Bible tells us that the way of salvation is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. A minister can't save you. The church can't save you. 
only the Lord Jesus Christ. And coming to Christ as the only, only possible Savior means confessing that God would be totally justified in putting us in hell, henceforth and forever. The unconverted person doesn't see things this way because he's not come to an end of himself. He admits, as we have seen, only a limited guilt. If a storm blows in a few windows, then maybe we're all sinners. But if some great disaster flattens the community or the house, then the cry is an offended, why did this happen to me? No understanding that God might be pointing his finger at real sin. It never ceases to amaze me the number of the number of catastrophes that have happened in the world in recent years, and and it seems to be catastrophe after catastrophe after catastrophe, and nobody is asking why is this happening. No concept whatsoever about about a society being under the judgment of God. You'd never hear that mentioned in the houses of Parliament. No, they have answers for everything doesn't matter what the problem is, we've got the answer. And if we haven't got the answer, well, the new prime minister will have the answer. The natural man is a great blame shifter, isn't that right? We see that right from the beginning in the Garden of Eden. You remember, after they ate the forbidden fruit, God came down into the garden where are you, Adam? The first question in the Bible. Adam, where are you? They hid because they were naked. How do you know you're naked? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the fruit? What did Adam say? The woman you gave me shifted the blame. She gave me. So it was good to eat, she gave it and I ate it. What did the woman do? The serpent beguiled me. She shifted the blame to the serpent. And we've all been blame shifters ever since, every single one of us. The natural man is a great blame, blame shifter. Who's to blame for the calamity of sin and all the consequences that it has brought upon this world? We are to blame. Human beings. We are to blame. I want to finish just with a wee, a wee illustration that R.T. Kendall gives and as we uh, commentary on Jonah. R.T. Kendall succeeded Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in Westminster uh, Chapel in London in 1977. He was an American and uh, came and occupied the pulpit there until he retired. And he gives this illustration. He says it's much like the story of some naughty youngsters who played a prank on a man with a moustache. They put Limburger cheese in his moustache once he was taking a nap. And then in brackets he says, Now, I don't suppose you know over here what Limburger cheese is. I have not seen its equal. I am happy to say, I'm happy to say I've not seen its equal. But you don't have Limburger over here. I don't know how to describe its smell, except to say that it's hardly like Chanel number no. 5. Okay, you get the drift. In any case, these youngsters playing a prank on this man who had fallen asleep, the man with the moustache, took some Limburger cheese and put it in his moustache. When he woke up, he said, this bed stinks. 
He got up, sat on the edge of the bed, took a deep breath and said, this room stinks. He walked into the next room, took a deep breath and he said, this room stinks. He went into another room, took a deep breath and said, the whole house stinks. Then he walked outside, took a deep breath and said, the world stinks. All the time, it was himself. It could be that you, my friend, are making everybody else miserable. You are blaming them. I am mistreated. People don't, mis people don't understand me. They don't like me. They persecute me. They're out to get me. You are blaming them. And you say, if only they would start acting right, then you could have some peace. That is just the way a backslidden Christian causes things to be. You make everybody else miserable. And so it was with Jonah on the boat. Something to think about, isn't it? Next thrilling installment, God willing, will be whenever I'm back again. I can't remember when that is. I think it might be Sunday week. I'm not sure. Anyway, we'll, we'll turn to God in prayer. Let's pray.